Our text for this morning is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And this is the word of Almighty God for us today. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Pray with me, friends. Lord God, I'm so grateful for this time together. I'm grateful for this season. I'm grateful for the hope that we have. And I pray, Lord, I pray that with all of what we have in front of us today, you will just give us the ability to be faithful to you in all things. Do a work only you can do. Save souls, convict sinners, draw us, encourage us, comfort us. Help us be what you, what you call us, God. Help us to be the saints of God if we're in Christ. Be glorified. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And y'all can be seated. When you hear the phrase, the Lord's Prayer, you probably think, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? How many of you, when you hear Lord's Prayer, think not only Our Father, but also think in King James? <laughs> I know you people. You know, those words are the beginning of what we often call the Lord's Prayer, right? But that might not be the best title because in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was teaching the disciples how they are to pray. It's the disciples' prayer modeled by the Lord, or some call it the model prayer. Skimming through the Gospels, we find very little text of Jesus' prayers. See, the Bible tells us often Jesus prayed. He withdrew sometimes to a quiet place alone, but very, very seldom do we see the content of his prayers. Some rare exceptions might be the words of Jesus, like um, Matthew and Mark and Luke telling us in the garden how Jesus prayed. In John, you see that Jesus prayed thanking the Father that, I know you heard me before he called Lazarus out of the grave. But really, none of the passages give you very many words of the content of the Savior's prayers. So it's interesting for us today, as we enter John 17, we have a section of 26 verses, all of which make up one glorious prayer from the Lord Jesus. We are somewhere between the upper room and the entrance gate of the Garden of Gethsemane, and nobody can tell you for sure where this was said. But Jesus has told his disciples all they can handle about his coming death, about his burial, about his resurrection. He has prepped them as best he can. And now what remains is to pray. The Gospel according to John 
which is the last of the four Gospels to be written, it looks different than the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're sometimes called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means they look alike. (laughs) But John, obviously familiar with the synoptics, sometimes he chose not to write about things that the other evangelists wrote. So, as an example, you read John's Gospel, you get none of the content of Jesus' prayer or his agony in the garden at Gethsemane. What you do get is this prayer of Jesus in John 17. A passage many people call Jesus' great high priestly prayer. The prayer in John 17, it's really unique. In it, Jesus prays for himself, for his current disciples at that time, and he prays for you and me, people who are going to believe in him in the days after after the disciples are gone. Jesus prays for the glory of God, for the preservation of the faithful, for unity in the church. His prayer is full of encouragement, full of joy, full of hope, and full of rich doctrine. I don't know for some of you guys. Have, have we over-doctrined you yet this morning? Are you guys good? good? Good, okay. You're pro-doctrine people. John 17 is a gem in the scriptures, guys. There's no longer recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus. And rightly, this can be thought of as the Lord's prayer, therefore. We who want to know Jesus, we can find joy, real joy, as we read the words from the lips of our Savior on the night he was betrayed. So guys, over the next four weeks, Lord willing, we're going to study this prayer from Jesus. Today we cover verses 1 to 5. I want you to be ready to write down six points of application. How many of you just went, whoa, I heard that. (laughs) We could have done more. Let's get started. Let's look at Jesus' high priestly prayer by looking first at a prayer for glory. That's what this is, a prayer for glory. Point number one, you ready? You groaners in the back. Because, here we go. Point number one, pray because Jesus prays. You pray because Jesus prays. Verse one begins, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. John's clear here, the opening line of this verse. This prayer from Jesus It's connected to the things that Jesus has been saying to his disciples over the past several hours. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. Jesus has told the disciples he's about to die, but he'll see them again. He's told them the Holy Spirit is coming to be their helper. He's told them that he's accomplishing the work that God has sent him to do and he's returning to his father. He's told them he's going to be betrayed by one of his friends. What would you expect Jesus to do in a time like that? There's nothing more he can teach the disciples. They can't take any more. What would you do? Well, Jesus pauses, lifts his eyes to heaven, and prays. He's not too stressed to pray. He's not too busy to pray. He's not too distracted to pray. His mind is not racing too fast to pray. No, Jesus knows he needs to spend some quality time with his father. So he prays right then 
right there. Notice, by the way, that the first word of Jesus' prayer is what? Father. That's just how he taught us to pray. The Savior is talking to God, and he's calling God Father, his very own dad. Jesus shows us that he has a loving, close relationship with God. He's showing us he can trust God the way a person should be able to trust the best father you could ever imagine. Jesus is showing us he can love God. He can be close to God. He can still show honor and reverence for God. Later in the same prayer, he's going to call God Holy Father, verse 11, Righteous Father, verse 25. So that's a theme that runs through the whole prayer. Well, Christians, we find ourselves sometimes in difficult days, don't we? You ever, you ever find yourself in a difficult day? Now, nothing we face is quite like the day Jesus is staring at. But still, we know what it feels like to have pain. We know what it feels like to have trouble. And if we're going to be Christians, little pictures of Jesus in the world, that's what Christian means, right? When we face life, we need to do what Jesus did. Jesus prayed. He talked to his Father. Our Lord made sure he didn't get so wrapped up in what was going on that he failed to demonstrate, both for himself and for those watching, that God's right there with him, caring for him. We need to do the same thing. Pray because Jesus prayed. Now, second point. Live for God's ultimate purpose, his glory. Live for God's ultimate purpose, his glory. Verse 1 continues, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So here we begin the prayer. Father, the hour has come. Jesus has mentioned his hour on multiple occasions in John's gospel. That's a theme in this book. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. Chapter 12, when some Greek-speaking folks asked to meet meet Jesus, Jesus said his hour was at hand. Chapter 13, Jesus again told his disciples his hour was here, the hour that he would accomplish the mission for which God sent him to earth. And now, in this prayer, the Savior says the hour is here. Now, when you put the fact that Jesus has been predicting his death for the last several chapters, you put that together with the fact that Jesus says he is entering the hour, the big moment, bless you, The one true moment in eternal history when the Son of God is going to do the thing for which the Son of God came. He's entering that moment. Jesus is standing in front of a moment of colossal importance. He is standing and looking forward to a moment that is the single most important moment in all of history, in all of eternity. You can't go too far in saying how big and how important and how serious a moment is coming. So let's do a little reasoning together. Wouldn't it make sense then 
In this situation, Jesus is going to pray for something of highest importance. Does that make sense? Would you agree? Whatever Jesus prays, when turning his eyes toward the most important single moment in all of eternity, is the thing of most importance to him and to God the Father? I will tell you that it is. I assure you, what comes out of the mouth of Jesus first in this prayer is what is of first importance. What does he pray for? Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The prayer is, Father, glorify me. Let me ask you, would you think, given what you know of the pain and suffering and struggle Jesus is facing, would you think that that prayer should be the first prayer that comes to the lips of the Savior when he stands in front of the moment that's going to, he's going to suffer the greatest agony, feel the greatest pain, bear the weight of sin, and save our very souls. Would you think that should be the prayer Jesus prays? Would you think that the first, the highest, the most important thing to come out of Jesus' mouth is that he would ask God, glorify me so I can glorify you? You would think that's the right prayer if you knew God the way Jesus knows his Father. You would think this is totally consistent with the nature of God, with the character of God. Why? Because, and I say this with absolute seriousness and big importance, the most important thing to God is the glory of God. Now you might want to know, is there biblical evidence for that claim? Because that is a big claim I just made. I want to read to you some verses from Scripture that talk about why God does what God does. Because if we find out the why of why God does everything God does, we'll know what's most important to God. John Piper helped with this, by the way. But I want you to notice in all of this, God will act for the sake of his glory or his praise or his name. Remember, when God does something for his name's sake, he's doing something for the honor of his reputation for his own glory. So, let's ask some questions and answer them from Scripture. First question, and it's important, why did God make People. That's an important question. Wouldn't you agree? If God made people for a reason, that reason tells us something about God. In Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold them. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, listen, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why did God create people? He said he created them for his glory. So, why do you exist? For God's glory. Now, why did God do the miracle? Remember, he, remember the whole parting the Red Sea thing? Why did God do that? In Exodus fourteen eighteen, the word says, 
The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Which means God part of the Red Sea for God's glory. Listen to God say why he spared Israel instead of killing them all when they were rebelling in the desert. Ezekiel 20, verse 14. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Do you hear God say why he saved them? For his name's sake, for his glory. Why did God bring the people back from captivity to Babylon? Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11. Listen to this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not, um, I've refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Do you hear why God rescued the people? His name, his praise, his glory. Now, maybe you're not an Old Testament history person. You should be because it's really, really important to who we are and what we believe. But maybe you have a more personal question that will help you. Why does God forgive sins? You guys think being forgiven is important? Why would God forgive someone like you or me? Isaiah 43, verse 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What's everything about, folks? How about Philippians 2, 10 to 11? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you guys see the point? Everything, absolutely everything God does is primarily for the sake of displaying the glory of God. It's no surprise that when Jesus comes to his hour and prays, he asks for God to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father. This is what Jesus is about. Jesus is dying to pay for our sins, yes, but he's doing it in order to protect the name of God as being merciful, loving, and just because everything is about God's glory. Is it really true that the death of Jesus on the cross is for the sake of the glory and the reputation of God? Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. Listen to this and hear it. For All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that familiar to you guys, by the way? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Listen for why he does this. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Why did the father put his son forth as a propitiation? It was to show God's righteousness. See, in the past, God forgave people even though the actual price for sins had not yet been paid. Jesus died to cover the sins of those God forgave in the past. And he died to pay for the sins God would forgive in the future. In order that the glory of God, the reputation of God as just and holy and merciful might be perfectly maintained. In all things, Jesus' number one priority is God's number one priority, which is the glory of Almighty God. How many of you would like to be like Jesus? If so, you have to find the center of your life in the glory of God. God's glory is his his weightiness, his worthiness of praise, his awesomeness, his magnificence. If If you live for God's glory, you do what you do so that when people see it, it shows them God is good and big and of utmost importance. So live for God's ultimate purpose His glory. Think about this. Before you take action, any action, ask, how will this action make God look big before others? Think about it. What job should I take? What city should I live in? Well, Where can I be that makes God look big? Before saying something to somebody, ask, will my words show these people that I think God is real and important? Think about it for a second. What are some of the things you've seen people have a fit over recently? How many of you have seen, heard people have a fit over that stupid racetrack and what it did to our city? If you're moaning about that, how big do you make God look? Sorry, I think I just got in some of your kitchens. Before spending time worrying, how many of you are worriers? I'm just a worrier. That's me. I just worry. Ask yourself, how am I showing God that I think he is powerful right now? When you worry, do you show God you think God's powerful? When you say, I just want to escape from people. I don't like people. Are you showing that God is great? Find ways to check your life, dear friends, and live for the glory of God, God's ultimate priority. 
And know this, by the way, when you live for God's glory, you know what you get? You get joy in the God who made you. See, when you see God's glory, you find out that being, giving God glory, that, that's, that's what you were made for, right? Psalm 63, verses 2 and 3 say, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What does that do to him? Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. When's the last time you had something that was better than life? That's the glory of God. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. How many of you are pro-pleasures forevermore? How many are like, nah? <laughs> I like a little misery. Seeing the glory of God is what gives us the joy that David wrote about in those Psalms. It is to be in the presence of God, to experience the glory of God. It is to experience the love of God that David says is better than life itself. If you want that kind of joy, live for God's ultimate priority, his glory. All right, third point. Give God total credit for anyone's eternal life. Give God total credit for anyone's eternal life. Jesus said he wants God to glorify him, right? He wants to glorify the Father. Why? Verse 2, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The glory that's bouncing back and forth between God the Father and God the Son has something very specific here. Jesus is saying, Father, you should glorify me so I can glorify you because of the, the authority that the Father gave the Son to save the people that the Father gave the Son. Jesus' authority to save the souls of the people that the Father has given him is the reason Jesus says the Father should glorify the Son so the Son can in turn glorify the Father. How weighty is this discussion? I will tell you, it's going to continue in verses 6, 7, and 8 of the prayer. I'm just going to brush it today and then, Lord willing, we'll pick it up a little more next week, okay? But I want us to learn a simple truth here, we must glorify God by giving God total credit for anybody's eternal life. See, God wants us to know something. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Look at the words in verse 2. Jesus has authority to save people not just opportunity. You see the difference? Let me ask you something. Did Jesus try to save anybody? What would that imply? That he could fail. You all think Jesus fails at things? No. He gives eternal life to those the Father has given him. 
the saved are the eternal possession of God. If you are saved, if you have eternal life, it's because the Father gave you as a gift to His Son and gave His Son the authority to grant you eternal life. We've said in other messages, there is an eternal agreement between God the Father and God the Son that includes the Father giving the elect to the Son as a gift for the Son's willing obedience to redeem the elect. This is every bit, 100%, to the glory of God because salvation is God's doing, God's work, and we dare not take any credit for it. I want to tell a story about someone. This is an absolutely true story, but I won't name the person's name, though he doesn't like me and therefore will not listen to the sermon. I once had a conversation with a man who was really unhappy about this concept. He couldn't stand the fact, the idea, that salvation is about what God does. And I asked him a simple question. Let's say that you and another man are both presented with the gospel. And you come to faith in Jesus and are saved. And he doesn't. Is that because you're smarter than him? To which he said, I guess it would have to be. Do you guys think that you're saved because you're smarter than somebody else? If you were saved because you're smarter, who are you giving the glory to? Guys, it's about God from start to finish. Now, did you believe? Yes. And did you really believe? Yes. And did you respond? Yes. And was it really you who responded? Yes. And it's still all because of the prior invisible sovereign working of Almighty God. Give God total glory and credit for anyone's salvation. I'm talking 100%, not 99.9. Give it all, all the glory to God because Jesus does. Point number four. Live the purpose of eternal life knowing God. Live the purpose of eternal life knowing God. Verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You ever notice, by the way, not everybody understands the same thing when they use the same words. Let's, give, let's use a word here. Let's take the word work. You ask one man what the word work means to him, and he'll say it's a curse. It's a bitterness. It's something to be avoided until I can hit the weekend. But ask another man, and work is the measure of a man's character, something that no good man shrinks back from doing Ask, ask one woman what the word clean means. <laughs> have you guys ever noticed that different folks have different definitions of the word clean? Well, the phrase eternal life, the word heaven. Well, different people stir those or have different images stirred up when they hear those words, don't they? 
To the Hindu, the phrase eternal life, living forever, is the very last thing a Hindu wants to do. Because when they think of life, they think of suffering and misery, and they think that the reward is to escape it. And to be absorbed into the whatever. Other people, other people when they think about heaven, see it as a dull place with a lot of white and really, really light blue coloring where people with no personalities play harps on clouds. But none of that's accurate. The Hindu's view of eternal life is not accurate. The person that sees a cartoon heaven is not thinking about it rightly. But let me ask you, Christian, how well do we do? How well do you do when you think about eternal life? When Christians sing about eternal life, what do most Christians sing about? They magnify mansions, if you're Southern Gospel, right? Streets of gold, crowns, gates of pearl. We, we talk about spending time with our loved ones who have gone before us, meeting the saints of generations gone by. Have you noticed that there are plenty of people who call themselves Christians, but who have adopted the unbiblical language of some deceased relative we love looking down on us and watching over us? You know why I'm pretty convinced my dad is not looking down on me right now? Because he's happy. He's perfectly joy-filled in the presence of Almighty God, why would he want to watch this world? But Jesus shows us exactly what's at the center of eternal life. What's the meaning? What's the purpose? What's the point of heaven? Jesus says, what's the gift God has given Jesus, the authority to give those who belong to him? What is eternal life? You sum it all up. Heaven, eternal life comes down to this, knowing God. Remember Moses, when God showed Moses a little favor, begged God for an ultimate gift. He said, please show me your glory, Exodus thirty-three eighteen. In Psalm 16, Psalm 63, David said to us, we read it, he says, the glory of God, the beauty of God, They're ultimately pleasurable. They're better than life itself. In Revelation chapter 4, the 24 elders around the throne of the Almighty are constantly captivated by the beauty and the wonder in the presence of God. See, the fact is, God, God made you, God made you with a great desire to see and experience what is bigger than you and greater than you. Isn't that true? Why do you think you gaze at a sunset? Why do you look up at a starry sky when you get away from the city? Why do you wonder looking at the Grand Canyon or the ocean? It's because God has made you to be filled with wonder when things are bigger than you. This is why you marvel at feats of strength or incredible wisdom or fascinating technology or awe-inspiring power. God made us to long for and to be satisfied by seeing and knowing something greater than what we are. 
We've got a hunger that is absolutely never satisfied to experience wonder. And God, the infinite, perfect, awesome, glorious one, he's the only one who can satisfy that longing. Any C.S. Lewis nerds? Further up and further in. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you know, you know. But what do you go when you go further up and further in? You see it again. And you want to go further up and further in. More and more and more to the glory of God. Because you were made to never-endingly be satisfied by the never-ending glory of Almighty God. What's heaven? Oh, heaven is a real place. I'm not pretending it's not. What's eternal life? It is life forever. That's true. But heaven and eternal life is to be in the presence of God, to be fully joyous over knowing God, over seeing God, over being in the presence of God. Heaven is perfect. It is a joy beyond anything this earth could ever begin to offer us because heaven is the ultimate joy of being with, knowing, and glorifying God as you were created to do. So why the talk about streets of gold, relatives? They're in Scripture. And they're there to point you to the glory of God. Will there really be streets of gold? I don't care. If, but here's the thing. If there aren't, it'll be better. God will not promise you something and give you less, Right? So if there aren't real streets of real gold, it's going to be even better than real streets of real gold. That was just the best word we had to understand. I'll take it, won't you? Streets of gold remind us of the riches of God and whatever they are, they will reflect the beauty of God so that we are like, oh my goodness, he is magnificent. Saints of old, saved relatives, they really are going to be in the presence of God with us and they will remind us of God's grace and God's faithfulness, and Christ's faithfulness. All of these things are part of heaven. But you know what? You're not going to be primarily focused on the streets or the pavement or the walls or the people, although you will hang out with them and have a great time with them. You will, if you have eternal life, will be centered, overwhelmed with the heart-filling, soul-satisfying, glorious presence of the Almighty God who's right there with you with no barrier of your sin Praise God. And let me offer you this warning. If the glory of God does not stir your heart so that you want to be in the presence of God, be concerned. Look, any description I could ever give you is a feeble attempt to, ex- to describe to you something marvelous beyond comprehension. So if I don't inspire you, don't worry. I'm not that inspirational a guy. But if you, when you think about being in the presence of God and seeing the glory of God, are not moved to long for God and to want to be in the presence of God, you should be concerned about the condition of your heart. Way back in my seminary days, I remember hearing David Platt, he spoke at a chapel for us, say this. And he said it with that weird David Platt passion. You don't go to heaven if you don't want God. 
And he was right about that. If being in the presence of God is not something you want, that sounds to me like you don't know God and that you don't treasure God. So be very careful with your heart and be sure that you're longing for the true heaven for which God created you. And listen to me right now. You can start having eternal life. What you do is you come to know and love and be amazed by God because he's revealed himself to you in his word. Treasure the word of God. Love the word of God. Spend time with God in prayer. Take worship seriously. Find joy in the presence of God now and begin to live out the purpose of your eternal life, which is you knowing God. Fifth point. Praise Jesus for completing his mission. Praise Jesus for completing his mission. Verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. (laughs) There you go. Jesus says, my hour is here. Jesus knows the work is done. There's no longer any teaching that Jesus needs to do. There's no longer some sort of healing miracle that he has to perform. Jesus has one thing left to accomplish. It's the atonement. He's going to die on the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of God's children. And Jesus knows that that last work is right in front of him. And from this moment, through his resurrection, Jesus is absolutely perfectly finishing the work he was sent to do it is done it's going to be done it's done perfectly it's so sure jesus prays about it as if it's all been accomplished because there ain't no way jesus is going to fail to do what the father sent him to do jesus came to this earth and he accomplished a mission that no other person could have ever accomplished you and i could never do the work that jesus did because we are a naturally sinful and b finite we are limited we couldn't accomplish jesus work because we're not god but jesus accomplished the work because he is the god of the universe who came to this earth to pay our debt christian see verse 4 is a call for you to praise god jesus did what he came here to do and be comforted the work is complete There's nothing you can do to make yourself likable to God. (laughs) How many of you take some courage and comfort in knowing you can't make God like you more? You can't make him like you less either. Isn't that good news? He looks at you, sees the son he loves with an infinite love and says, mine. I'll take that. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. There is nothing left. Praise Jesus. Thank Jesus. Praise him for finishing his mission. And point number six. Yes, six for you groaners in the back. Praise Jesus as God, the eternal one. Verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now Jesus prays to be glorified, but notice here in the words of Jesus, we can learn something about Jesus, something that we've been saying chapter by chapter by chapter all through this book. Jesus 
is God. How do we see Jesus as God in verse 5? He speaks to the Father about the glory that he shared with the Father before the universe began. Before there was creation, before there was time, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit exist together. One God, three persons, perfectly joyous, perfectly beautiful, perfectly holy, perfectly relating to one another in love and glory. There's a constant flow of love and glory back and forth from one person of the Trinity to the others as each finds joy in exalting the perfections of the others. This is a picture that our minds are just too small to imagine, but it's marvelous. So let's just say this. If Jesus can claim to have shared glory with the Father from eternity past, he's claiming to be equal with God. If Jesus claims to be equal with God, you know what Jesus is claiming? He's claiming to be God. As we realize this, We know we can worship Jesus. He's not just a man who did some really good things. He's not just a good teacher and philosopher whose ideas got him into trouble with the government. Jesus is the God of the universe who came to earth to save us from sinning against him, to save us, to pay the price for and save us from our sins against him. He's perfect. He's worthy of worship. Praise Jesus for his deity. Praise Jesus as God, the eternal one. Well, let me ask you, how do we respond to all this stuff, folks? There's, I don't know, does it feel like there's a lot packed into those five verses of a prayer? Well, let's try responding like this. Set your eyes on the glory of God. Christians, Jesus has shown us that God's glory is the number one priority in all of the universe and beyond. He's shown us that his glory is central in our salvation. He's shown us that his glory is central in eternal life. He has shown us that his glory is central in completing his mission. He's shown us that his glory is bound up in his identity as God. So today, let your mind and your heart Focus on the glory of Jesus and give him praise. And let that redirect your life so that everything you do, everything you say, everything you think magnifies the glory of God for everybody to see. Learn to find your joy in God's glory. And if you're hearing my voice and you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, You don't know the wonders and the joys of the glory of God. God invites you. Come to him. See him as supreme. Find your life's meaning and his supreme worth and value and glory. You will only be able to do this, though, if you come to Jesus, turn away from sin, and seek God's forgiveness that he provided in Jesus Christ. I urge you to do that today. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, even now, I pray.
that you will do magnificent things with us as we start to see your glory. Help us to really, really be people who love you and who find our life's purpose in honoring you. Help us to be people who rejoice in you, who who honor you, who find everything in just knowing how great you are. Help us overwhelm our hearts. Give us a picture of your glory and your majesty. Save the souls of those who need saving and help us all to give you 100% of the glory for all that saving work. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.